Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning. Good to see everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 10. I'm going to get to it in just a second. We're in Hebrews 10. We're continuing our study of Hebrews. First, just a couple of things. George, just thank you for your prayer every week, brother. I'm just so thankful for the way you lead us, and that is a huge thing, and I'm very, very grateful. Um, something else I want to say, and I last week I preached on a very tough passage in Hebrews 10. Uh, it was about the judgment of God, and I just want to encourage preachers, teachers, even parents to... To do this, this is something I've had to learn over the years, to make the tone of your message match the tone of the text. And I've learned that over the years. So if you're, no matter what you're doing, if you're dealing with a very rough, stern text, don't make it a joke. Don't make it silly. Be stern. And I know it's hard as a pastor to do that because you want to be encouraging and uplifting. But my encouragement is just allow your message, whatever your teaching situation, allow your message to match the tone of the text, all right? Also, I want to expound on something I said last week. Um, also, Ben, it's good to see you, brother. We're very thankful for, for Lucy. It's just awesome. It's awesome. Um, I want to expound on something I said last week. Last Sunday, I briefly mentioned about how being a pastor is difficult, and I wasn't trying to throw a pity party. I'm not trying to do that now. I'm not trying to play the victim. In fact, actually, I think that being a victim is really a faith killer. If you think of yourself as a victim, it's really terrible. It's like a cancer to your faith because you end up being self-centered. You expect everybody to serve you, that type of thing. But I did talk about just briefly about being the difficult, about the difficulties of being a pastor. And I did this just to offer my perspective on suffering, because as I said, we don't know how much other people are suffering. We don't know what they're going through and they don't know what we're going through. And so uh, I was also making the point that it's impossible to quantify suffering. So I was just giving my perspective, my insight on the things that I go through as a pastor. But I also said this, I don't claim to have it worse than anybody else. I don't claim that at all. But I want to say this, just, and I've never talked about this, but I want to briefly just discuss it. Uh, in my view, I think preachers are often afraid of revealing the difficulties of ministry. But something I want for us as a church, and this is something I've wanted from the very beginning, is for us to, to, to be real to have some level of transparency about how we live and the things we go, th go through. And that doesn't mean that every time I get up here, I'm going to complain about things in my life, okay? I'm not going to do that. It would be miserable. It would be tiresome. Uh, and so really, rarely I talk about any of the trials I'm going through. At the same time, I don't want to give the impression that my life is a cakewalk or that, that anybody's life is a cakewalk. Because what I found is if you're going through suffering, and you think that everybody else's life is wonderful, it just makes it really hard. So I don't want to, to do that. And I want to, on occasion, just express some, have a, us to have some understanding of the suffering that we're going through. And also, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to double down on my statement about the difficulties of being a pastor. So I'm going to just briefly talk about this. As I said last week, I found that being a pastor is, is just being in ministry in general. It can be tough on your family your emotional life, it can be, even be hard with your walk with the Lord. And I've talked with ministers, and they agree with me on this. If they're honest, they, they talk about this. 
And so ministry just in general is tough. Why? Well, lots of reasons, but one is this, that you often learn about terrible things that people do. You just, you just learn about those things, even folks in church. Also, and this is nobody's fault, but as a pastor, and we're talking about suffering, you can learn about immense suffering that people go through. I can go, I can go around the room even now and think about people that have gone through just awful suffering or their families have or they're going through it right now. And it's just hard when you care about people and you see that they're going through difficult things. It's very difficult. Also, as a pastor, you have sort of unique responsibilities and you have to be prepared for those. So if someone looks like they, if a friend or family member looks like they are on death, you know, knocking on death's door, one of the things I think about is not only does my heart break, but also I think about responsibilities I have. Like I think, am I going to have to preach a funeral soon? I need to be prepared for those things. So there's just weight. There are just responsibilities that come with that. Also, being a pastor has, I've noticed, my limited experience, I've been an elder now for, I guess, 16 years, but I've been a pastor here, lead pastor here, for, what, almost six, five and a half, something like that. And one of the things I've just observed about being a pastor are there's these huge swings emotionally, just big ups and downs. When God is working in somebody's life, when he's healing people emotionally, when he's saving people, when he's just doing a big work, there's these huge highs. But when things are going bad, they're really hard. And I've talked about this. I'm a lawyer and I love my work as a lawyer, but the highs and lows of being a lawyer are about right this, right? They're just, it's not that great and it's not that terrible. They're kind of in this range. Uh, And honestly, when I leave the office or I log off of my computer, I almost never think about stuff as a lawyer. It just doesn't even cross my mind. I just put it aside. But not being a pastor, not being a pastor, many, many nights, I wake up at 3 a.m. with my mind racing, thinking about things you guys are going through or thinking about decisions we have to make as a church and leadership, and it's it's just tough. Also, I was talking to a friend about this, there's the reality of spiritual warfare, It's real. I'm convinced that Satan and his demons focus their attack on churches that exalt Christ. Spiritual warfare is real. Demons are real. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are angels and demons near our church every week. That would not shock me because the battle is real. So this is warfare, right? Being in war is hard. And I, I want to clarify something else. I know that some guys go into ministry because they want to be seen as successful or they want to be seen as a leader or they like telling people what to do or they like being in charge, they like being an authority or something like that. But I tell you, that's not the case for me. I'm not crazy about always leading. And that's not why I'm a pastor. In fact, when someone else takes the lead and they're doing an effective and God-honoring way, then praise the Lord, I want to get out of the way, honestly. I'm just not crazy about it. And this may surprise people too. But I'm not a pastor because I like it, okay? There are things I love about being a pastor. There are many things that I love. I enjoy preaching. I enjoy studying God's word. I enjoy caring for people and getting to know them. But it's not like my life would end if I stopped preaching or if I stopped being a pastor. It's not where my true identity is not as a pastor or a preacher. Another thing, I enjoy my relationships with our fellow elders and deacons. I can tell you this, WCC has the most godly and loving and Christ-exalting elders and deacons I've ever been around. I love those brothers so much, and they love me and my family with a Christ-like love that is just really wonderful. But again, that's not why I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor for one reason. God called me. 
That's why I'm a pastor. A soldier doesn't fight because he enjoys the fight, right? He fights because his commanding officer selected him for a mission and told him to fight. And my commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ, called me to plant WCC, and he called me to be a pastor. And I will continue in this calling as long as God wants me to. But that's the only reason I'm a pastor, because God called me, okay? All right, enough of that. Thanks for bearing with me on that. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, again, as a reminder, the writer to the book of Hebrews, he's a pastor. He's a pastor too, and he's preaching this sermon to a congregation of Jewish Christians. And the church that he's writing to is going through immense and prolonged suffering. And I want you to keep remembering that as we go through Hebrews. They're they're going through just tremendous suffering, and we'll see that today. And as a result... The folks in this church are tempted to, there are some people that are tempted to turn away from Christ and to return, their temptation is to return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it looks like some of them have already done that. And the writer, this pastor, can tell that others are just suffering, in the midst of their suffering, they're tempted to turn away from the church, from their brothers and sisters in Christ, and even Christ himself. So the writer's saying, despite your suffering, persevere in your faith. Keep trusting in God. Keep the faith. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 11 is this famous chapter on, that people call it like the world or the hall of fame of faith, right? And so he's going to talk in, uh, big time about, about faith. But here at the end of chapter 10, the writer gives both a warning and a word of encouragement. Last week we looked at the warning and it was a splash of cold water in the faces of suffering people who were tempted to turn away. And the warning was the threat of God's judgment. Well, this week we're going to look at verses 32 to 39, and it's actually a word of encouragement. So it's, it's more encouraging. It's a word of encouragement to a suffering church. And if you're suffering today, I hope this will be an encouraging passage for you. The writer's encouraging them to be strong in their faith, so the title of my sermon is Faith in the Midst of Suffering. Okay? So let's read the passage first, 32 to 39, Hebrews 10, 32 to 39, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. All right, Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. He says, but, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay? So, as I said, the writer's been very tough, but now he's being very encouraging. And what he's saying is, you remember that in the past, he's calling us to remember in the past, you went through these times of suffering, but you made it through. God brought you through it. And even in that, you were caring for other people. You were caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what, this is my encouragement for all of us to do that. To remember times in the past when God was faithful, we were caring for others during the midst of suffering. Okay, so that's the context. Let's walk through the passage verse by verse. Verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle 
with suffering. So again, he's saying, remember the past. Recall the former days. So one of the ways that we can fight the good fight of faith is to remember things in the past. And he says, after you were enlightened. That is, after you received the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light. So the light of truth of Christ. When you received that, when you were enlightened. And then he says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The word struggle there can be translated as contest, like an athletic contest. In fact, the Greek word is where we get the word athlete or athletic. It's like athlesis or something like that. So that's what it's talking about. So if you think of two, say, football teams battling each other as hard as they can, he's saying you're on one side, you're one team, and the opposing team was sufferings, okay? So you're going at it. You're having this contest, this struggle with sufferings. So it was this athletic fight with suffering. Sufferings were your opponent, okay? And he says it wasn't just a struggle, it was a hard struggle. And he said, and you endured it. As you battled against sufferings, it was very, very difficult. It was a very difficult fight, but you endured. You fought through it. So he's saying, remember those times. Remember those times when you fought sufferings in that great struggle. And then beginning in verse 33, he's going to describe the suffering. So look at verse 33. He says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So he says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Another translation says, made a public spectacle through insults and distress. So you think about a group of people who are experiencing insults and reproach. They're being embarrassed. That's a big part of this. They're being shamed. They're enduring affliction. And even if they didn't go through it themselves, they stood by those who were being mistreated. They were partners with those who were treated poorly. Poorly. That's what this church went through. Okay? And it was public, publicly exposed or made a public spectacle. I don't do, usually don't do a lot of Greek words, but I thought this was interesting. Another Greek word is where we get the word theater. The word theater is there about being publicly exposed. So it's like you being up on stage for all the world to see. And you're being embarrassed. You're being shamed. So they were going through this time of suffering for their faith in Christ, and it was public. It was a public spectacle. Commentators have suggested that the context here was probably Jewish Christians who were expelled from Rome in 49 AD. So in 49 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome, and they were embarrassed publicly. Many of them were arrested. They had property stolen. All of them were kicked out of the city. So it was a public embarrassment, and that's probably what these Jewish believers were going through. And I think the public nature of this being made a spectacle, like up on a stage, being embarrassed publicly, I think this may have been the worst part about it because especially it's terrible enough for us, but this was a shame-honor culture. And this is the absolute worst thing that could happen to somebody. But even for us, if you've ever gone through public embarrassment or public shame, it's just terrible. It's awful. And so this church went through that, but... In the midst of this, they stood by each other as they were going through it. So he's saying, remember those times when you went through this immense suffering, public suffering. But he's saying, you didn't just turn in on yourselves. 
You didn't think of yourself as a victim. You didn't lash out at others or lash out at God. No, you went and you loved your brothers and sisters in Christ. You stood by them. You identified with them. And you were willing to go through this mocking and shaming. And he's saying, and God brought you through all that. All right, verse 34. He continues reminding them of how they cared for others, even in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 34. He said, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he said, you had compassion on those in prison. So their fellow, their fellow Christians were arrested and put in prison. And he says, you had compassion on them. You visited them. You took care of them. You cared for their families. You, again, you identified with them. He's saying you showed boldness and courage in standing up for your brothers and sisters in Christ who were in prison. This was a huge thing because back then, often prisoners were not given food. And so if you were in prison and you didn't have friends or family to care for you, you'd die. So this wasn't just encouragement. This was actually life, right? This is actually giving life when you cared for somebody in prison. And he's saying you did this. You were willing to do this. And then he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So whatever is happening here, their property is being plundered. Maybe they were visiting friends in prison and a mob ransacked their houses while they were gone, right? Or, or maybe a mob stole from them. Or maybe it was carried out by the government. We don't know. But whatever it was, while they were trying to care for one another, their property was plundered. They were robbed. This was, in other words, this was immense suffering. And yet, he keeps saying, despite all this suffering, he's saying, I want you to remember how this happened. He's saying, you responded with joy. You see that? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You accepted it with joy. Now, how do people respond to suffering with joy? How is that possible? How can that happen? He's saying, you had joy despite the fact that your property was being stolen. And they continuously had this joy. How, how did they do that? What was their motivation? And I would ask us ourselves, how can we have this kind of joy in the midst of suffering? I want it, don't you? I want to have this joy in the midst of suffering. How do we do it? Well, he tells us in the next section. He says, since you knew, and this may be the key part of this entire section, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What's he talking about here? He says, since you knew, they knew something, right? They knew something. They had absolute confidence in something. That's how they had this joy. And what did they know? What did they know without a shadow of a doubt? He says, you knew what? He says that you had a better possession and an abiding possession. A better possession and a lasting or eternal possession. So what does he mean by that? So I'll, I just ask you to think about it. As Christians, what do we possess that's better than all the wealth of this world? What possession do we own that's better and that's everlasting? It never ends. That's well, lots of things, right? Heaven, <laughs> eternal life, the resurrection life to come, the new earth to come, Jesus himself, God himself, being with God with no sin, the kingdom of Christ in all its fullness, Eternal joy and love and more happiness than you could ever imagine. All this is ours. All this belongs to us. 
So these, earthly, these early Christians knew that they were aliens and exiles in this world. And they knew that their true home was heaven. Their true home was the new earth, the new Jerusalem to come, the re- resurrection life to come with Jesus. And although the life to come is unseen, right? Although Christ is unseen to us right now, that's our real home. And they knew it. That's why I've had, we've wanted you to memorize 2 Corinthians 4, that passage that tells us to look to things that look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These early Jewish Christians knew that the unseen kingdom of Christ was their real home. They knew that Jesus was preparing a place for them. And they truly believed, they knew that this world is inferior compared to their real home, heaven, the resurrection life to come. They truly believed that this world is transient, temporary, and will one day end. They knew that. And they knew that their true home is in heaven with Jesus. That's their true home. And that's the better possession. And it's abiding. It's eternal. In other words, these early Christians had an eternal perspective. The writer to the Hebrews is constantly encouraging us to have an eternal perspective. And because of this eternal perspective, that's how they were able to have joy, even when their property was stolen and they were going through immense suffering. And that's why as Christians, it is vital for us to constantly set our minds on the things above and not on things on this earth. It's vital for us to constantly have an eternal perspective, to constantly think about Jesus who will return one day. It's vital for us. This is hard work, but it's vital for us to train our minds to think on heaven and the things of God. I would encourage you to go through Hebrews and find all the eternal perspective as you go through it. It's all over the place. He's constantly telling them to look forward and look to the things that are not seen. That's what he's doing throughout the book. Listen, this world wants us to focus on the things of this world, right? This world wants us to focus on things like money and pleasing self and getting all I can in this life. But from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective, this world is passing away very quickly. And when we start making a conscious effort to view the world from an eternal perspective, We can hold the things of this world with an open hand. We don't have to constantly grasp for more. We can let things go. Because we know that our eternal home, our true possession, is with Jesus in heaven. Our true home is not this world. Our true home is in heaven in the unveiled presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns... It makes everything wonderful. In fact, in the next section, you're going to see he's going to talk about Jesus' return, right? That's, again, our eternal perspective. That's our true home. Again, that's why I want us to memorize that 2 Corinthians 4 passage because I want us to have this rock-solid certainty that this light momentary affliction, it really is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So don't look to the things of this world, the things that are seen. The things of this earth, the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're fading away. So don't fix your eyes on them. Instead, fix your eyes, think about it, it's an odd statement, right? Fixing your eyes on the unseen, 
How do you fix your eyes on the unseen and fix your eyes on uh, and not fix your eyes on the scene? It's an odd statement. What Paul is saying is the eyes of your heart, right? Spiritual eyes on the things that are unseen. Okay, because the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, heaven, new Jerusalem, resurrection life to come. These things are eternal and they're better. They're better and abiding. That's our better and abiding possession. All right, verse 35, he gives them this encouragement. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He says, don't throw away your confidence in Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence in God the Father, the Holy Spirit. Don't throw away your confidence in the promises of God. Because it has a very great reward. Again, eternal life, home, heaven, your true home. Don't throw away, don't put it aside, this confidence. You should have this rock-solid confidence in the promises of God, despite the fact that they're unseen. You should have confidence that the Lord loves you. That's a huge thing, right? You have confidence that the Lord loves you. That can be difficult in the midst of suffering, but you've got to have confidence in that. You gotta have confidence that Jesus, again, is preparing a place for you. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. That's the great reward. And so he's saying, don't put that aside. Don't throw away that confidence. Hold on tight to that. As I said, we need to have an open hand when it comes to the things of this world. We can let go of the things of this world, and that means we can take risks for Jesus because we know that our confidence is in him and it has a great reward. So we hold on tight to confidence in Jesus but we hold loosely the things of this world. And this is how we can become joyful. This is how we have joy even in the midst of suffering. Again, by having an eternal perspective and holding on tightly to our confidence in Christ. All right, look at verse 36. He says, for you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You you have need of endurance. The Greek word for endurance here is hupomone. I think I'm saying that right. Hupomone, it literally means, it means remaining under. So hupo or hypo is like below or under, right? So hypodermic, dermic is skin. Hypo means under, it's under the skin, right? So, so hupo or hypo is under and meno or mone is remain or endure. Okay, so he's saying remain under. That's what this word means, this endurance. Enduring under, remaining under. It's like being under a weight. You need to remain under or endure under trials. He's saying you need to have this steadfast under the weight of this suffering. Again, like being under this heavy weight. And it's hard, right? It's very difficult. But we need to remain steadfast under suffering. We all have a need to grow in our ability to endure under trials. And God is the one who gives us the strength to endure the challenges of life. So as we're thinking about suffering, we would ask, well, why does God allow us to go through terrible things? Why does God allow us to go through suffering and prolonged suffering? I'll tell you this, I don't have all the answers. (laughs) And if anybody claims that they have all the answers for all the suffering that goes on, don't believe them. Because nobody knows the mind of God like this. And there's a book by a guy named Christopher Wright called The God I Don't Understand. And in many ways, our God is a God that we don't understand, right? I I know that God is sovereign. I know that God loves his people more than we can imagine. But in many ways, he's a God we don't understand. But as I said, God loves us. He's sovereign. We hold on to those things. We grasp tightly to those. 
And I also know that he allows us to go through suffering because we have need of endurance. And the fact is, suffering produces endurance. Romans 5.3 says this exact same thing. It says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's that word hupomone again. Suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces faith. Okay? And God permits suffering in our lives to produce endurance. Johnny Erickson Tata is one of my heroes. And she says this. She says, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. If you know anything about Johnny Erickson Tata, when she was a teenager, she had a terrible diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay, and she was paralyzed. And she's been paralyzed for over 50 years. I think it's been 56 years now. Johnny Erickson Tata has been paralyzed, and yet she is one of the most spirit-filled, godly people you will ever know about. She survived cancer. She survived chronic pain. She's talked about, I've read a number of her books, she's talked about the difficulty. She's being real too, right? She's laying in bed, wakes up in the morning, and just the difficulty of her sweet friends who come in to get her out of bed and wash her and get her dressed every day. She talks about the struggles of that. And yet, her faith in Christ is amazing. And she'll tell you this too. She'll tell you that she's not a victim. She's a victor in Christ. But again, there's her quote again. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And Johnny says this, those are 10 short words that changed my life. And here in Hebrews 10, 36, the writer is saying, God knows we need endurance. We need that hupomone. We need to remain faithful under trials. And you know what? God knows that often the only way we can grow in endurance, the only way we can grow in faith and trusting in him is by enduring suffering. Often that's the only way. As I said last week, the important thing is not how much you're suffering. How can we even quantify that, right? But the important thing is how are you going to respond? And it helps to know. It helps to know that God permits what he hates, namely suffering, to accomplish what he loves, namely our growing endurance, our growing trust in him. Think about it this way. If you're on a boat and you drop anchor, you believe that anchor is strong. You're absolutely convinced that anchor is strong. But how do you know that that anchor is going to hold through during a hurricane? How do you know? You know how you know? You go through a hurricane. <laughs> you go through a hurricane, and then you'll know that that anchor is strong enough to hold you. That's how you know. Well, our anchor is Jesus Christ, and he will hold us fast, and he's not going to let us go. But how can we know the full strength of his grip? How can we know the full power of his love? By going through hurricanes of suffering. And watching him hold fast during that time, that's the only way we can know. The only way we can grow in endurance, the only way we can be absolutely confident that Christ, the anchor, will hold is by going through sufferings and having, us, having him hold us fast. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, suffering is horrible. I hate it. I'm not a good sufferer, okay? I'm not. I don't like going through it. And when I'm in it, I'll just be candid. I just want it to be over. I don't want to learn from it. I just want it to be over, okay? But God cares so much about me and he cares so much about you. He cares so much about our faith and endurance that he permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Verse 36 continues. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
So we have need of endurance. Why? To do the will of God. To do God's will. To be obedient to him. To remain faithful to Christ. To grow in faith. To grow in holiness. That's God's will for our lives. And what's the result? That we may receive what is promised. Notice again the eternal perspective here. What's promised to us is heaven. Jesus' return. Eternal joy with Christ. But the promise is not seen, right? It's a promise for our eternal home in heaven, but that's in the future. We can't see the future. It's unseen. And that's what promises are. They're, they're things for unseen. By definition, that's what a promise is. You can't see the future. And that's why faith is hard, because it's not right here, right now. It's something we're promised for in the future. But we grow in enduring faith, growing in endurance under trials. When we do that, our trust in God grows. And the result is when we've done the will of God, we will receive what's promised. We come to verses 37 and 38. This is a a paraphrase of both Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk 2. And it says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He says the coming one will come and will not delay. He's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus. Again, the eternal perspective, right? It's here again. We're called to fix our minds on unseen truths, on the truth that one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to make everything right. But notice he says yet a little while. That seems strange to me, a little while. It doesn't seem like a little while. But right from God's perspective, it's only a little while before Jesus returns. As Second Peter 3 says, with the Lord, a thousand years are like a day, right? So from God's perspective, it's only a little while before Jesus returns. And you know what? I think when we're in heaven and we're worshiping the Lord, I think we'll lose track of time. I think we'll just lose track of time because it'll be so glorious. And I think the trials of this life will be like a dream to us. I think they truly will seem light and momentary from eternity's perspective. It'll be like, I remember I went through a lot of suffering But it just seems like a dream to me. It just doesn't even seem that huge to me. And we'll think it really was just a little while that we were on this earth and then Jesus returned and he did not delay. And then it says in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by what? Faith. Faith. That's what it's all about. And again, that's what he's going to introduce and expend a whole chapter on in chapter 11. Faith, trusting in God. Again, having an eternal perspective, trusting in Christ even in the midst of trials, trusting in God's character, trusting in his word. And God says, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, in other words, if he backs off of faith, if a person stops believing God's promises, then God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. God has no pleasure in people who stop believing his promises. God has no pleasure in those who turn away from Christ. So throughout Hebrews, the writer's been telling us to draw near to God, through Christ, draw near, and he doesn't take pleasure when we back off. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So this is cool. The writer includes himself with his congregation. You know what I'm saying? He says, we. He said, I'm right there with you. He says, we're not the type of people who shrink back from Christ and are destroyed. That's not who we are, he says. He says, we're the type of people who have faith who draw near to Jesus and preserve our souls. So again, it's faith. Verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. 
Verse 39, we are of those who have faith. So putting some things together, verse 36 says, we have need of endurance, hupomone. Romans 5 says suffering produces endurance. Verses 38 and 39 talk about faith. And again, this is in the context of suffering. So putting these things together, we can see this, that what God wants is to bring about through suffering, he wants endurance and faith. Endurance and faith. Or we could put it this way, enduring faith. How about that? That's what God wants, is enduring faith. And that's what I see as the goal of God, at least one goal of God in our suffering, is enduring faith. Okay? So that's the passage. And in the next chapter, chapter 11, the writer, as I said, is going to talk about faith extended, all these examples of faith. And we'll begin that in a few weeks. I'm going to finish the sermon today with a few bullet points, just a few thoughts I've had about this ending section of Hebrews 10. Some of these I've already talked about, but I want to briefly address them again. So I've got four things, I think. Yep, thank you guys. Number one, prolonged suffering changes people. I'm saying prolonged suffering changes people for better or worse. Again, it's our response to suffering is what matters. And prolonged suffering in particular is very difficult, right? Most people can endure some suffering for a short amount of time pretty easily. It's the, it's the suffering that just keeps on and on and on that's so difficult. And that's what really produces change in people. Some people come bitter. Some people come very bitter through prolonged suffering. But others, like many of you in here, like Johnny Erickson Tata, just grow in enduring faith through suffering. So I'm asking you, to, as you're going through faith, I mean, as you're going through suffering, think about your response. Just look at yourself and evaluate, how am I responding to suffering? Pay attention to your response. Number two is this, God permits suffering to create in us an enduring faith. As I said, this enduring faith. God, listen, God has a purpose in our suffering. He has a purpose in our suffering. Our suffering is not meaningless. Your suffering matters to God. He's not a cold and ruthless God who doesn't care about you. He loves and cares for you, believer. Jesus died for you. That's how he shows his love for us. He died for us. And God has allowed suffering. He has permitted suffering in your life for a purpose. And I'm asking us to truly believe that. And God's purpose, at least one of them, is for us to grow in enduring faith. Again, as Johnny says, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits suffering, which he hates. A father does not enjoy watching his kids go through suffering, right? God does not, God does not take pleasure in us going through suffering. He hates it. And yet he permits it to accomplish what he loves, namely us growing in enduring faith. And God forges enduring faith through the fires of suffering. Number three, we fight for enduring faith with an eternal perspective. I'm going to talk more about this as we go through Hebrews 11. But the bottom line is this, to grow in enduring faith, we can't be passive. You can't just allow the suffering to come to you and expect to grow in faith. We have to fight. We have to actively fight to believe God and do his will. And we fight the fight of enduring faith with an eternal perspective. And this, I'm going to be super brief on this, but just practical things. This is like Christianity 101. Daniel was actually teaching this in Sunday school about the importance of the word of God. 
I would ask, I would just encourage you to just take, say, three verses. It doesn't have to be hundreds of them. Three verses, write them out with your hand. Write them on a piece of paper where you can see it and remind you of God's perspective, the eternal perspective and his truth. Things like this, and we'll talk about this in Hebrews 11. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take every thought captive to obey Christ, right? We, we take every thought and we look at it. Is this, is this good for me? Well, if not, that it's an enemy and I need to take it captive like a prisoner of war and put it in prison, okay? It's active obedience. We look at this. Is this thought good for me? Is it from God or is it a thought that I have that's sinful or is it thought from the evil one? So we take every captive. We, thought, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Another one, Romans 8, 28, right? We all know this one and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's a truth. Now, I don't like, if someone's going through suffering, don't go, well, you know what? All things work together for good. Don't do that. That's horrible. But the fact is, Romans 8, 28 is true, right? And we need to develop that and believe it. Write it out. Have it on a piece of paper on your desk or by your bed or whatever. Write these things out. Another one, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is for Israel, but it applies to us. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Just things like that, whatever they are, find some, uh, John Piper's ministry called them fighter verses, right? These are fighter verses. This is how we fight for faith to keep an eternal perspective. And then finally, number four is suffering leads to glory. This is actually part of an eternal perspective, but I wanted to separate it out. Again, our, part of our memory passage is 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What Paul is showing us in that passage is that suffering and glory are linked together. It's like suffering is the root and glory is the flower. It's like the earth is right here. Suffering is down here and, and glory is the flower. They're linked together. We go through suffering and it's like being down in the dirt, Right? It's like being down in the roots, in the earth, in the darkness. It's terrible. But from God's perspective, what he sees is like the flower of glory. Up above in God's eternity, our suffering is seen from his perspective as the flower of glory. And that means right now, God sees your suffering as being linked to glory. Glory is what suffering looks like from God's eternal perspective I like this quote. This is from Fyodor Dostoevsky's book called The Brothers Karamazov. Brothers Karamazov is a book about the depths of human suffering. And one of the brothers, who is a follower of Christ, says this. It's kind of a complex thing, but he's talking about the return of Christ. And he says, I believe like a child. In other words, I have faith like a child. That suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. He's talking about when Christ returns. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. And I believe that's what's going to happen when Christ returns. So we need an eternal perspective as we go through suffering. As I said, knowing that God has a purpose in suffering Suffering leads to glory. We will go through sufferings in this life. We will be tested. But we need to have this rock-solid confidence that we have something better than this world.
that we have a better possession and an abiding one, that our true home, our eternal home is in heaven with Jesus, that he really is preparing a place for us. And your suffering leads to glory. When Jesus returns, he's going to make everything right. I promise he's going to make everything right. He's the coming one and he will not delay and he will bring to us what he has promised, resurrected bodies, a new earth, eternal joy. We will be raised from the grave and we will see Jesus face to face. And for endless days, we will sing his praise. O Lord, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you. Uh, I thank you for this passage. I thank you, Lord, for my friends that, that I've looked out upon even this morning who have gone through suffering, who are going through suffering right now, and they're growing in their endurance. They're growing in faith, even when it hurts. In suffering, we all make mistakes. Lord, we all mess up. But we trust that you're here with us, that you love us, you have a purpose, and you're going to grow us in enduring faith as we go through it. And so I thank you for my friends who are just an example to me of what it means to grow in enduring faith as they go through sufferings. I'm so thankful for my church family, Lord. I'm so thankful for my friends. Help us, Lord, to bring glory to you by trusting in Jesus more as we go through suffering. And for folks who have not gone through suffering and they they cannot really relate to this message, I pray that you would just hide this passage in the back of their mind because they will face it someday. And I pray that they'll remember what you've said here in Hebrews 10 to help them to go through it because we all are going to face it. So we love you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being with us and walking through us and through, through suffering with us. Thank you, Lord, that we get to share Jesus in your sufferings. We get, we get draw closer to you through these sufferings. And it is producing in us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's now the time in our service when we get the great privilege of fellowshipping with Christ spiritually at the Lord's table. Uh, This is not just for members of Walton Community Church. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you're welcome at this table. We just ask you to turn away from sin, right? Turn away from sin and bitterness. Turn to Christ. Come to the table. Uh, This is, as I said, members of, you don't have to be a member of WCC, but we do ask that you only come if you are a follower of Jesus. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, his broken body for us. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Shed blood for us. And Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's the eternal perspective again. Jesus is coming. Let's pray again. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you that we partake of the Lord's Supper every week where we just remember what you've done and going to the cross and taking upon yourself the sin, our sin, and the judgment that should have come to us. So therefore, there is now no condemnation hanging over the heads of your people. All that remains is love because of what you've done for us, Jesus. And your merit, your good works have been imputed, transferred to us in your sight, Lord. So now that we stand before you, Lord, not condemned, but loved. 
because of what you've done for us, Jesus. So thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for suffering and just loving us. And help us to remember that, that this is proof that you have loved us, Lord, that you went to the cross for us and you were raised from the dead and you're preparing a place for us. And you're returning one day. So even now, Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, even now. We pray this in your name. Amen.